Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Sampra. New funding for McMaster's nuclear reactor. Another great sign for Hamilton's COVID recovery efforts. President Biden draws applause from MPs. Mohawk Institute survivors are being urged to share their stories. Hamilton's Peregrine Falcons are back. And there's a new football partnership here in Hamilton. The JMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. It's good to know that there has not been a nuclear incident at McMaster's nuclear reactor. Uh, Instead, it's been quite the opposite, all positives, basically. And another positive came during the provincial government last week, and that was new funding for McMaster's nuclear reactor, $6.8 million, in fact. So what's that money going to be used for, and and what does Max Nuclear Reactor actually do? Dave Tucker is an assistant VP of research in the nuclear facility at McMaster University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dave, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm great. Very excited about this excellent news. Thanks. Yeah, $6.8 million. What is this money going to be used for? Uh, This money will go towards funding our expansion of the reactor to uh, turn it from operating 16 hours a day, five days a week, to 24 hours a day, five days a week, and to go to our full rated power of of three megawatts. So what we're doing, Rick, is turning up the output of the reactor by 300%, and that supports, importantly, medical isotope production, supports uh, research in medical isotope production and and radiopharmaceuticals, and provides... uh, Three times the neutrons for our research and academic users. Fantastic news for Hamilton. Absolutely. In terms of the medical isotopes used in cancer treatments, how much more are we going to see? Well, um, Rick, we're we're currently from the reactor supporting or producing material that provides cancer treatments uh, for over 70,000 patients a year. And there's the uh, potential in this expansion to uh, increase that. It could be by up to three times. It depends really on on how big the market is. But very importantly, this uh, change in the way we operate lets us produce a new suite of medical isotopes. There's emerging uh, isotopes of concern uh, for, for new treatments like lutetium 177 is an example of that, that we just can't produce effectively on our, what we call intermittent operation. Medical isotopes are, they are dying away even as you make them. And when we shut down every night for isotopes with sort of medium half-lives, we lose all our production. So by operating continuously for five days, we'll be able to produce a broader suite of isotopes will be driving uh, research and innovation using those isotopes to make new cancer treatments and will be uh, supplying commercial markets with the with the isotopes to get drugs into the hospitals. When is the move going to happen to go 24-7? Is that in the next several weeks or later on this year? What, what's the timeline? 24-5 and we're, we're already underway. This is a very a big change in our operating profile. So we're taking it step by step and doing everything very systematically. We already have uh, some of the additional staff hired and in training because there's long training programs and and periods in this business. So we're gearing up for a change to 24 hour a day operation by the end of this year. 
Uh, obviously, you, you even referenced this. You've brought on some more individuals. Is the hiring spree continuing, or do you have everyone that you need on the job right now? Uh, no, we'll be continuing to expand uh, through this year, and there's a, a number of areas that are the first priority is to get the operators in and trained that will operate the facility in the extra shifts that we're running. So that's been our first priority. We're expanding our maintenance staff and expanding our safety and health physics team, uh, our management staff for the facility. And then this will enable us to expand our research group also that uh, looks at how we do production. And that's another area we're already expanding. We have uh, jobs that we're recruiting for, for isotope production teams. In, in the minute that we have left, I, I do want to talk about that research capacity. Uh, the, the the what ifs or the the endless possibilities are out there with any kind of research facility. This would be no exception. I mean, the the possibilities are endless, aren't they? They, they really are, Rick. We're doing important work supporting the industry, but also supporting material scientists. We're building Canada's uh, neutron beam facility that does important work for this country's future in material science. Just last week, we installed a device that produces beams of positrons for researchers that uh, is important for surface science and is one of the few facilities like that in the world. And medical isotope production uh, and supporting that new research, that makes sure that Hamilton's going to be an important part of our uh, global $30 billion industry. And there's already uh, spin-outs in Hamilton, Fusion Pharmaceuticals and Adam V that are making Hamilton a hub for this kind of work. And the presence of the reactor is a real anchor for that type of activity. It is absolutely phenomenal, and it's happening right here at McMaster University in Hamilton. Dave, thanks for your time. Good luck with us. Great. Thank you very much, Rick. Dave Tucker is the Assistant Vice President of Research at the Nuclear Facility at McMaster University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, it's the end of an era and a, and a positive ending, I would think. St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton closing its COVID-19 testing and assessment center and the flu, COVID and cold clinic at the West 5th campus at the end of this month, which is just later on this week. Dr. Greg Rutledge is the Deputy Chief of Staff at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Rutledge, good morning. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I would suggest this is an extremely positive and significant move in the timeline of the pandemic. Would you agree? I would agree completely, yes. It's, uh, it's exciting, I guess, to be a good, a good way to describe it. How many appointments on a week-to-week basis are we seeing now? Obviously, a, drastic, a drastically reduced number than at the height of the pandemic. That's correct. That was the main impetus for, for closure, to be honest. We just aren't seeing the same degree of, of pressures that, you know, we're, we're down 50%, 60% from where we were at the height of, of, the, of the pandemic. And so uh, that combined with there just being lots of options in the community, most of the community pharmacies can now do testing and support testing. So it was a, an opportune time to, to look to close it. For the nurses and the other frontline staff who are in these clinics, does it free them up to do other important duties? 
It potentially it can. Yes, there were some who have, who have come out of retirement, just felt that need and calling to help the community, and so some will likely go, go back to enjoying their retirement. But there is that potential both at a physician and, and nursing level to to uh, look for them to to provide so, support elsewhere in the healthcare system. We are uh, three plus years into the pandemic now. It's kind of hard to believe. Has time has certainly flown by. Can you just recollect the the, the early stages of implementing this testing and assessment center and the the, the flu cold or COVID cold clinic at the West Fifth Campus? Just just all the heavy lifting that had to be done to implement it. Yeah, it really was an amazing uh, opportunity for us in terms of the the infrastructure that had to be put in place. And we think back to pre pandemic times and the. The, the, the time frame for change and how everything got accelerated during the pandemic. So putting up an entirely new clinic with support staff, with nurses, with physicians um, in such a short period of time was actually such a testament to, the, to all the work that healthcare workers have done during the pandemic. I think if we look back to that time, it was that was really our best uh, our best sort of arm in the in the battle, and that insofar as we didn't have a vaccine at the time, we really needed to know who was positive and who was negative, in terms of limiting outbreaks, and so was really integral at the time. Did it work as you expected to to work at, right at the onset? It, it really did. Yes, we were seeing an incredible amount of community support, community individuals coming through, and so that ability to just. Um, have an opportunity to know who was positive. We had great uh, we had great information at that point around isolation timeframes, um, helping out families so they knew, helping out schools so the kids knew. Um, it really was uh, um, a really was an amazing success story. And again, on the backs of all the individuals who stepped up. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Dr. Greg Rutledge, Deputy Chief of Staff at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton, as we talk about the uh, impending closure of its COVID-19 testing and assessment center, as well as the flu, COVID and cold clinic at the West Fifth Campus at the end of this month. Um, staff burnout has been a thing throughout the pandemic. Are things getting better? Are frontline healthcare workers now finally getting a break? Uh, that's a good question. I think burnout is still top of mind of everyone. Uh, it's been a long three years. Uh, you know, I think we're seeing the effects of, like we see in all walks of life, of, of uh, workforce loss in terms of individuals who've retired early. So we still see those challenges around finding staff. I think every hospital is actively recruiting and doing their best to get more staff available. Um, and so I think the staff still struggle from that perspective. It is still at times, I think, frustrating for staff and that in the hospital, we're still masking appropriately so to kind of protect our vulnerable patient population. But um, it is still feeling like somewhat like a pandemic in the hospital, given the the restrictions that we have. And so I think that's a struggle sometimes for the staff. But um, everyone's adapting. We're, we're supportive and, and looking forward to, to getting on to more innovative ideas outside of pandemic. So I think everyone's excited as we think of the healthcare system and what we can do entering or exiting, excuse me, the pandemic. Can you give us a sense of the staff shortages at St. Joe's? Is it are, are we are we are we in need of dozens of physicians and nurses? Or are we in the hundreds? Well, give us a sense of what you're looking for. Uh, it's it's hundreds, but not like hundreds of thousands. It's just uh, it's it's hundreds. It's down from where we've been. We we certainly feel like we've we've hit a peak in terms of the individuals leaving the the system, and so um, are now looking to slowly, well not slowly, but as quickly as we can build that build that healthcare force back up. Um, and so it is higher than it historically has been in terms of our, our vacancy rates, uh, both at nursing and, uh, and uh, other support levels. But we are actively recruiting and, and uh, optimistic that we'll be able to see a turnaround in that. Um, it has been a challenge over the years. And I think we're, we've hit a point where we're, 
leveled off in terms of people leaving the profession, and now it's about finding those new recruits who are excited to join. Obviously, there's an impact between, you know, finding those new recruits and filling those positions and uh, trimming those wait lists, which are a huge issue in, in the healthcare community. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and we, we have a um, uh, have actively started uh, that search. If we think specifically surgical waitlist, which we see in the in the public more than not, but there are other waitlists for specialists as well. But started to actively um, get after that waitlist in terms of doing cases on the weekend, extra ORs uh, that we're utilizing that was were funded by the by the ministry that we're using region wide to support the region. I think that's again something that came out of the pandemic was that we needed to support across the region, not simply hospital to hospital, and so. Um, I think we've got a plan to slowly start to bring those wait lists down. Well, good luck on the recruitment effort, and uh, thanks for uh, everything that St. Joe's Healthcare Hamilton has done in our community, not only through the pandemic, but uh, for all times. It has been a, a key contributor to the health of this community. Dr. Rutledge, appreciate your time this morning. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. That is Dr. Greg Rutledge, the Deputy Chief of Staff at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton. Should mention as well that Hamilton Health Sciences is also closing its flu, COVID, and cold clinic at McMaster Children's Hospital at the end of the month. So our two healthcare, key healthcare providers, key hospitals in this community, closing their COVID clinics, uh, which is really a sign of the times. Finally, we're making some headway in this, and we're not seeing... A lot of people getting tested. Obviously, they can go to their pharmacy. They can go to, you know, a grocery store and get a free testing kit and, you know, away they go. So uh, this is, uh, I think, a uh, feather in our cap in, uh, in how far we have come. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You know what felt pretty good? was Joe Biden's speech on Friday at the House of Commons. He had a lot of great things to say, although... He did also say this. I like your teams except the Leafs. <laughs> they beat the Flyers back in January. That's why. And if I didn't see that, I married a Philly girl. If I didn't say that, I'd be sleeping alone, fellas. I like you, but not that much. You know, I used to like that Joe Biden guy. No, I'm kidding. Uh, in a speech to parliamentarians in the House of Commons on Friday, Biden said America and Canada will stand together against authoritarian regimes. And uh, he believes we have a, quote, incredible opportunity to work together. Aaron Ettinger is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Carleton University and joining us now on Good Morning Hamilton to break down the speech given by President Biden. Aaron, good morning. How are you? I'm well. Yourself? I'm good. I thought the president's speech was uh, direct, uh, encouraging, inspiring at times, and it really showed, I think, his level of appreciation for Canada. What were your takeaways? Uh, you know, I, I kind of had the same feeling as you. Uh, perhaps I was maybe a little bit more uh, negative on that in, in the sense that, uh, you know, when he got really going and, you you know, the, things got really stirring, when he was kibitzing about the Leafs and all that kind of stuff, it was a lot of fun. When he was reading off the teleprompter, it was deadly boring. But <laughs> yes. the content of the speech, I'd say, was very standard stuff for uh, an American president coming to Canada. It's all kind words, all good stuff and good vibes in public uh and and that makes perfect sense after all you know this is an extraordinarily close relationship one where you do not want to rock the boat too much we all know who rocked the boat a lot over the last five or six years and it was definitely not a productive situation so biden came up here with uh with one public agenda which was to make the canadians feel 
happy and good about this relationship. Was there a bit of, of, of surprise for you? Because there was to me, knowing that what's going on in Ukraine, uh, what is happening in the South China Sea, that there wasn't a little bit more of a, hey, Canada, we need you to spend more on defense. That was really interesting. Uh, that, it, that, you know, security topics didn't make their way into the, the center of his address. Biden's address was pretty much uh, mostly about economics and the North American trading relationship and within the broader context of global trade, particularly vis-a-vis China. Stuff about defense uh, was muted. You're right to say that it was muted. There were a couple of mentions here and there, but for the most part, I bet the conversations about defense spending were relegated to the behind-closed-door meetings because uh, that's the place where the U.S. president will tell Justin Trudeau that you are not doing enough and you don't want to have those kinds of divisions spill out into public. Uh, there was also a very emotional scene when the two Michaels were introduced, uh, their first public appearance uh, really since being released from China. It really comes at a unique time, given the election interference scandal, fiasco, brouhaha, whatever you want to call it, that has uh, uh, really uh, uh, put a cloud over Parliament Hill. Mm-hmm. Your your uh, guess as to why the two Michaels were invited, and you think that was done before this election interference stuff came to light? Yeah, it was probably done before all the election interference stuff came around. Uh, it was definitely symbolic to have those two in the House at the time, uh, because, you know, to put it simply, you know, those two really took it for the team. Uh, Canada, when faced with the extortion coming out of China, when the two Michaels were arrested, had a choice, right? They could capitulate to China and get those two citizens home, or they could stick with the, well, as they say, the rules-based international order, the legal arrangements between Canada and the United States regarding extradition rules uh, with regards to Meng Wanzhou, who was the, you know, the, the trade bait in all of this with China. Canada made the decision to, uh, you know, let the Michaels languish in prison for a thousand plus days in order to stick to its principles about the rule of law. So, you know, that's why I say they really, really took one for the team and their appearance in the House of Commons was was pretty remarkable because both of them have kind of accepted it with an extraordinary amount of grace. Aaron Ettinger is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Aaron is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Carleton University, talking about President Joe Biden's speech to the House of Commons on Friday. Not only did he talk security and economy, but also the climate policy that these two nations have and and, and share to some degree. Your thoughts on what Mr. Biden had to say about climate change and the policy going forward? Yeah, this is really interesting because it sort of puts Justin Trudeau in a tricky spot. Biden's policy over the last couple of years has been to steadily increase regulations in the United States, right? Make access to the American market contingent upon your country raising the quality, raising the standards of your, uh, you know, pro-climate, uh, pro-climate uh, regulatory environment. And that's tricky for Justin Trudeau because, as we know, climate change politics in this country is controversial, especially based on regions with Albertan, with Alberta's interests being, uh, you know, yeah, in, into lower level degrees of regulation, that forces Justin Trudeau to say, well, we, Canada needs access to the American market. So we will have to match those regulations. Generally speaking, I think that's a good thing, right? And nobody should be surprised about this because Biden has been talking about this kind of policymaking for at least three or four years, well before the 2020 presidential election. So, uh, the Liberal Party in government should not have been caught flat-footed if they were. Uh, and none of this should be a surprise. Great chat with Aaron Ettinger from Carleton University. Aaron, appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. 
Thank you. Aaron Ettinger is an assistant prof in the Department of Political Science at Carleton, joining us here on GMH. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Another thing that is going a long way to helping many people is the Survivors Secretariat. And it is uh, encouraging survivors of the Mohawk Institute Residential School to come forward and share their stories. It is an extremely difficult thing to do. Uh, but some have done it. Others are being uh, urged to to do the same. Tabith Curley is the communications director with the Survivors Secretariat and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Tabitha, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm good. How good. how are things proceeding with the Survivors Secretariat? They're doing great. Um, we have a great group of survivors who advise us on our advisory committee who are keeping us uh moving along and we're right now we're doing we're staffing up for some of our summer student positions that are going to be doing our ground search efforts um yeah you're encouraging others to share their stories as well how many have done so so far um well we definitely have survivors who are part of our advisory group that come in and share their stories as they go along we are doing some more campaigns this uh, summer. Uh, part of we had a survivors gathering last year where people were able to share in an open forum. We're doing a little bit more structured of an approach this year with our second annual survivors gathering. It is just for survivors only, and the reason for that is is to create a safe space that's trauma informed for survivors to be able to open up and uh, give testimonials about what happened to them at the school or to give some insight. Um, on the ground. So we do have a number of different ways that we collect data. We do have a research team through Known History that's collecting archival data, and we have um, some other people who are working on finding, like, old maps of the school. And what we'll be doing is we'll be engaging those survivors to say, okay, well, when you were at the school, how was the school set up, laid out? The school did uh, operate for over 140-plus years, so there is generations of children who went through those schools, and the, the footprint of the school itself has changed substantially over that time. Um, so, like, even the school has burnt down once, it has been removed, has been moved to a different location, the farm has been relocated over those 140 years. So part of that sharing with the survivors at the gathering will be asking them, how did the school look at your time? These are the maps that we had, and then helping those like visual aids to spark the um, survivors' memories of some of uh, the physical features of the the grounds at the times in order to best direct our ground search efforts. Um, the actual property itself is substantially large. Um, during the time of the operation of the school, it was over 600 acres of interest. So it's a little bit like looking for a needle in a haystack. So we're really trying to narrow down our approach and our search by using some of those survivor testimonials um, to kind of find out where the best areas to spend our resources are. We only got about a minute. When is this gathering taking place, and and will it be on the site? No, it actually will be on the site this year. Uh, Last year it was. The reason being is um, the Mohawk Institute is going um, over some Save the Evidence repairs. So the building itself is rather old. And uh, Woodland Cultural Center fundraised to to renovate that building. Um, so there is a, a heavy amount of construction happening um, actually at the Institute. So this year it's going to be held on Six Nations at the gathering place by the Grand Event Center and at Cheesewood Park. So 
um, yeah, we'll be on Six Nations this year. And, and, and we will be having survivors coming from all over Ontario. Last year, the furthest survivor who came was, I think, over 1,800 kilometers. And they retraveled that journey that they were brought when they were like seven, eight years old from their home communities. Wow. And when is this happening? It's happening at the end of June. So it's actually going to be happening on June 27th is the first day. And that's significant because that was the day that the school closed at June 27th, 1970. So that's the, the day it's happening this year. Well, Tabitha, appreciate your time and sharing uh, some insight on what's happening later on this year. And best of luck with it. All right. Thank you very much for having me. Tabitha Curley, Communications Director with Survivors Secretariat. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, they're back. Hamilton's Peregrine Falcons making headlines once again. After one of the Falcons, high atop the Sheridan Hotel, laid some eggs over the last week. Here to talk about it is Pat Baker, Senior Monitor at Falcon Watch, who joins us here on GMH. Pat, good morning. How are you? Very well. Good morning, Rick. So uh, the Peregrine Falcons are back. They're laying some eggs, and uh, a lot of people are excited about this, obviously yourself as well. What's it like for these Falcons right now? What's going on? Right now, they're just starting to incubate the eggs. You will see them sometimes. They will not be sitting on the eggs. They take the female, uh, Makiva, will be doing most of the incubating. And they sort of try to adjust that so that the first egg and the third egg, which arrived uh, five days apart, will be fine. And we're just watching and see, waiting to see what happens. So there's three eggs right now, and there's there's obviously a mom and a dad falcon. Have these two falcons been at the Sheridan for years? Is these the same two falcons we've been watching for a while now? No, they're not. Makiva arrived last year in January, and we ended up with four chicks last year. Judson had been here for a year before. Uh, Lily, the previ- uh, previous female, which died, she was found on the ground near uh, Bay and King and was not in the best shape at that time. So we're very pleased to have two young, new parents there. So how are these peregrine falcons finding this perch on the Sheraton? Oh, it's absolutely ideal for them. They've got plenty of food in the neighborhood. The, uh, there are no predators around at all. And it's a very, very comfortable nest ledge for them. Very similar to something that they might encounter in the wild. But they seem to be, they've been here now. Oh, coming up to, I'm sorry, I should have checked this, but I know it's, <laughs> I think, coming up to 28 years now we've had them there. Wow, that is pretty phenomenal. And and people who are interested can go on the website falcons.hamiltonnature.org and keep watch of these uh, of these two peregrine falcons and their eggs. So we have three eggs. Is there a possibility for a fourth? There is a possibility. They're usually laid, takes about 48 hours per egg to come. So uh, we, but we haven't seen one. It'll be today. The last one appeared, um, let me see, on uh, Saturday morning we saw it. We think it was uh, came on Friday evening, but we don't have, don't know whether we have another one because of the way they they move from one end of the ledge to the other, and it's very hard to see the nest when it's in the east end of the ledge, uh, just because of the cameras there. Pretty phenomenal stuff. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Pat Baker, Senior Monitor of Falcon Watch. Uh, do we know where these falcons came from? Uh, yes. Um, Makiva 
It was from Windsor, and uh, she was actually named after the founder of the uh, Owl Foundation, if I'm correct. I'm, I'm not exactly sure about that. But if you look at the history on the website, it is all there. And Judson came from Buffalo. It's kind of phenomenal where, you know, two yeah. falcons from different countries, I mean, they don't consider them different countries, they're they're just flying around, meet in Hamilton, and uh, away we go. That's right. No, and it's interesting to see when they we, we, we do get, obviously, falcons coming through. And uh, last year, we, there were several uh, in and around the area, and they are very territorial, so they have to go and find their own territory. Do we... Uh, Hopefully these will stay for a while. Yeah, well, let's hope. Do you, do you know if there's other peregrine falcons in town, and are they looking at the Sheridan thinking, hey, I want a home like that? There was an uh, unbanded uh, falcon up on the mountain closer to um, Upper James and Rymel Road. It's no longer with us. Um, it's, and there used to be, and I'm not sure if they're there this year because of the construction going on uh, down at the... Um, lift bridge there was a nest there i haven't heard yet of any others in the area we do hear periodically of some that are in and around mcmaster but nothing yet so far this year we're talking about hamilton's peregrine falcons making headlines again after three eggs were spotted atop the sheridan hotel last week pat baker is our guest pat is a senior monitor with falcon watch why do we get so excited about these sightings I think it goes back to the fact that they were an endangered sea species. And in the late, sort of the late 80s, 90s, there was a huge effort put on to try to bring this breed back to, or remove it from the endangered species. And they are now a series of, a species of special concern. And we'd like to keep it that way. So it's great to know that we have them here. So and there are several nests in Toronto area and around. And the... Birds in the urban settings are doing very, very well at producing chicks. So that's encouraging also. With the uh, with the three eggs uh, being laid, when can we expect them to hatch? It's a bit of a flexible time, but we're looking at the last week of April. So keep your eye on the ledge, the, uh, the website, and uh, we should be seeing something towards the end of April. It's anywhere between 30 to 33, 34 days. Wow. And is, is it, last. and is it likely that, that these chicks stay in the Hamilton area? No, definitely not. They will be brought up with their parents and then they will have to go and find their territory. And that's, they usually leave, oh, towards the end of August, early September, and they will find their territory. They may go just a little bit beyond Hamilton, that area, but basically the area that the parents now have is their territory. So, as I say, it would probably be at the far limits of the city if they decided to stay. We do hear about one or the other occasionally, but no, they will go and find their own, and they go a long, a long distance. And uh, McKeever and Judson will be uh, empty nesters once again come the fall. Pat, really appreciate your time and uh, giving us some t an update on uh, the Falcons here in Hamilton. Thank you so much. Please ask people to go to the website and consider volunteering. You got it. That is Pat, help us Pat Baker, Senior Monitor at Falcon Watch. The website, falcons.hamiltonnature.org. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Big partnership announced last week between the Hamilton Tiger Cats and Football Ontario. They've come together 
on a new partnership that aims to bring more youth football events to the city of Hamilton and, of course, Tim Hortons Field. And here to talk about it is Courtney Stephen, the Director of Community Partnerships with the Hamilton Sports Group. Courtney, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great, Rick. Thanks for having me. What is this partnership going to provide for local youth who want to play this sport? Well, you know, Football Ontario obviously has their hands in everything, whether that be touch, tackle, or flag football, anything that happens in this great province. And us as one of the biggest, if not the biggest, football team in the province, we as well, we're doing the same thing. So there was a natural alignment in what we were already doing, but working together and coordinating and pooling our resources, we could reach more people and also provide a little bit of a more enhanced experience for everybody who's involved in in amateur football, whether that be the athletes who are on the field or the referees who are you know, looking over these games or even the parents and the coaches who are in the stands and in the classrooms supporting. So just working to enhance what we're doing, reach more people and create a few more opportunities to get involved. So is this going to be uh, games, practices, clinics, skills, competitions, everything under the sun? Everything that you can think of from running clinics at a big facility where people don't always have access to and bringing them into maybe they're going to get access to the same meeting rooms that the Ticats coaching staff would have to run a coaching clinic. And maybe instead of just a coaching clinic that we're putting on, that clinic will also have coaches be able to get some professional development credits for their national coaching certification program. So they could actually start out or advance their coaching career if that's something that they wanted to pursue. Um, we're also doing things such as raising awareness about getting involved as an official because you know without players there's no game but of course without any officials there there is no game either so looking at growing all aspects of sport and supporting at all levels too because there's been a lot of uh, excitement around flag football and flag football directly correlates to tackle football in that it's not a game that has as many financial or um, participation barriers for people you can start out with just a team of five to play flag football and if you fall in love with the game then maybe you end up later on playing tackle or if you don't play maybe you coach maybe you come out to a tie cast game shoot maybe you even end up going to an argos game we we won't hold it against you but <laughs> as long as we get people playing and enjoying football in all of its forms i think that's a win for everybody Absolutely. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Courtney Stephen, the Director of Community Partnerships with Hamilton Sports Group. And we're talking about a new partnership between the Tiger Cats and Football Ontario that is going to bring, well, a lot of uh, youth, uh, some um, aspiring officials and coaches to Tim Hortons Field to learn and grow the game. And that's what this is all about. This also means that uh, it's going to have a monumental impact on the sport in the city, in the this province what do you think that impact is going to be are we just going to see better of everything players officials people who consume the game well i think football for a while was almost under attack somewhat there was a lot of apprehension about getting people involved uh especially with you know the things that were in the media and, and negative headlines and i think after everybody took a step back when 
we had no choice but to be in our houses for a long time, we realized that football has a lot to offer a community. And given that there's so many different positions on a football field, that means that there's a lot of different opportunities for many different types of people to participate. So with things such as, you know, modified versions of the game for younger kids, flag football, we've got women's football growing, collegiate football, there's just a different opportunity for everyone in the community and raising the awareness that those things are out there and available to you is half of the battle. And if we want to talk about this game that we love, the Canadian game specifically, you have to get people introduced at a young age so that there's an opportunity to become fans later on down the line. And, you know, I played in the CFL. I'm an avid fan of the CFL. And as part of growing that game, I think the CFL has to take ownership of going down to that grassroots level and planting those seeds. So I would love to see kids in Niagara, St. Catharines, Burlington, Oakville, Guelph, Cambridge. I would love to see those kids with Ticats jerseys on instead of NFL jerseys, which is it's cool. And I love that people love football, but I want to see black and gold all over Southern Ontario because this is our game. It's the Canadian game and we should be the ones who are going to that grassroots level and investing in the future of it. Last one for you, the uh, Ticats, we only got about a minute, the Ticats High School Mentorship Program coming back uh, this year. Was it a success in 2022? Are we going to see any changes for this year? Oh, it was a great program. We, we went out to over 20 schools and were able to pair up one of our players with a coaching staff and a team and also through that program, provide some scholarship opportunities for those students who are going on to post-secondary. So that's a program we love. Uh, we've got great partners in Stelco who support that program, and we're going to continue to ramp it up and make sure that we can reach as many people as possible through that program. It is a phenomenal program, growing the game through the eyes and the athleticism of our uh, young people in this community. That's never a bad thing. Courtney, appreciate your time uh, this morning. Best of luck with this going forward. We'll, uh, we'll keep our eyes on it. Thanks, Rick. Really appreciate it. Courtney Steven, Director of Community Partnerships with Hamilton Sports Group. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.